0: You're listening to The Ascent Archive, a podcast of oral histories with rock climbers collected by the University of Utah and produced by the J. Willard Marriott Library. I'm Tali Kasucci, librarian, rock climber, and oral historian.
1: And I'm Rachel Whitman, and I'm also a librarian. For decades, memory workers, including historians, librarians, and archivists, have conducted oral histories to document life experiences of notable groups of people, These oral history transcripts, and sometimes their accompanying audio and video, are kept in the archives of libraries and museums around the world with varying degrees of access. This podcast, focusing on interviews with rock climbers, is an innovative approach to make oral histories more accessible and easier to listen to on the go or at faster speeds.
0: The Ascent Archive podcast features oral histories that I conducted for the Rock Climbers Oral History Project and others from the American West Center's Ever al-Cooley Oral History Project. To find out more about these collections, visit the Ascent Archive website, which is included in the show description. You're about to hear an oral history that is unedited. Please excuse possible interruptions, sound quality issues, potentially outdated or offensive terminology, and the occasional curse word. <music> In this episode, you'll hear from Ryan soon. Ryan is co organizer of Color the Wasatch. With years of experience in the financial industry, Ryan serves as treasurer for the Salt Lake Climbers Alliance and volunteers on multiple SLCA committees. Hope you enjoy. Good afternoon. It's September twenty seventh, two thousand twenty two. I'm Tally Kasuchi, and I'm talking with Ryan Soon at the Merritt Library in Salt Lake City about rock climbing and his experiences as a leader of the Color of Color, the Wasatch, and the treasurer and board member for the Salt Lake Climbers Alliance. So, to get us started, Ryan, do you mind introducing yourself and telling me a little bit about where you're born and what it was like growing up?
2: Yeah. So, as you mentioned, name's Ryan Soon. Um, and you know, all those sort of roles you mentioned before, but I was born in Irving, Texas, which is a small little suburb in sort of the Dallas Fort Worth area, um, in 1993. Um, so grew up in Texas, um, until, oh, actually, sorry, I was born there and then moved to Hong Kong for a short stint for about two years and then moved back to Texas, uh, and then was in Texas till, um, I was about 11 and then moved to San Jose, California, and sort of spent most of my sort of formative uh, developmental years uh, in California.
0: Awesome. Uh, what were some impactful experiences growing up that you remember today?
2: Yeah. Um, there's a fair few of them that I think, when I look back, kind of shaped very much who I am now. And uh, one of the primary ones is, like, growing up in Texas in a relatively, you know, not a hugely diverse environment um i remember taking recess and within sort of the entire we would take recess with our grade and then sort of the surrounding sort of grade down and grade up so it was like you know first second and third grade we all take recess together or something like that and i i remember within those three grades there were a total of three asians and i remember growing up that You know, and there were two different sort of playground islands, like, you know, sort of structures. One for the, you know, a larger one and then a smaller one. And three of us would just kind of hang out isolated in our own little playground structure. And um, so that was definitely, like, throughout all of Texas, it was weird where there were things like our neighbors would notice that our cars never left the lot, like, didn't leave our house on Sundays. You know, so it was very much like this process of from our family like assimilation and trying to figure out where do we fit in, where do we not fit in and so on and so forth. Um, and then we moved to California in 2005. Uh, and so we went from a place with almost no Asians and no other you know no very little diversity in that sense to a place where you know off San Jose California has a lot of Asians and a lot of diversity. Um, Not to say that, you know, there are issues around having just a full place of only Asians isn't another, you know, is another form of homogeny. But, um, and I remember going to sixth grade um, in my first day of school. And this is going to sound like wildly ignorant, but like growing up in Texas, the idea that like there was a place called like Vietnam and that there were Vietnamese people and there was, you know, this whole war and this trauma surrounded by it. I remember my first day of school in California, I went up, went up and I was like, I met this person and I was like, oh, I'm Chinese. And I'm like, what are you? And they're like, oh, I'm Vietnamese. And I had to be like, for a second, I was like, oh, what's, what's that? <laughs> Which like in hindsight, like it sounds extremely ignorant of me, but it was just like, that was such a framework shift for me growing up and like a huge shift in my understanding of like what, Environments I'm, I'm growing up in. Um, so those were definitely like, you know, that sort of contrast between these two places that had very formative impacts on me now, uh, was quite something. Mm
0: -hmm. Definitely. Did you have any hobbies or activities that you would do to encourage making friends?
2: (laughs) Yeah. Um, my parents, of course, growing up in a, you know, pretty traditional Asian American household, um, school performance was sort of the paramount thing. So I went to school essentially seven days a week. Um, I had your typical five days of schooling. Um, And then I had Chinese school on Saturdays, which really pissed me off because it was uh, the same time as Saturday morning cartoons. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I never got to watch Saturday morning cartoons because at 8 a.m. I'd be whisked off to Chinese school. Um, which I remember terribly little of my uh, of my Chinese writing now. Anyhow, but an important cultural experience. And then on Sundays, I had um, I went to math school, extracurricular math school. So at the age of like ten, uh, I, I was learning you know geometry and complex algebra and you know possibly some basic levels of like trigonometry and stuff like that. And so, um. And then, you know, played violin, like pretty much checked all the stereotypical Asian American boxes, like played violin. I did Taekwondo, played some sports here and there, but mainly, and then Taekwondo was the big one for me for three, four years. Um, And then, uh, yeah, so made some few friends through Taekwondo, made some friends through school, uh, and then in the free time, whatever, in between those, it was mostly video games. But growing up, I was not like in quote unquote, like outdoors Z person, um, it was just outside our framework of understanding and reference. Mm-hmm. So it was, yeah, mainly just your typical Asian American activities. Mm-hmm. So,
0: so at what point? Um, can you talk a little bit, maybe, about your educational journey? Because you mentioned that um, before this, <laughs> that you went to college eventually.
2: Yeah. Um, so I went to college at. Um, university of california irvine um in southern california it's about an hour sort of south of sort of the core of los angeles and that was very much an exercise of realizing things i didn't want in my life um it was one my sister went to uc berkeley and so i had that dream of you know Going to UC Berkeley, I didn't get in, uh, was devastated, had a stick on my, you know, had to just like had a chip on my shoulder when I started at, at University of California Irvine, which I'll refer to as UCI, uh, from now on, and um, was very bitter about it for a little while. Um, but eventually settled in and then sort of shifted to it, you know, realized, okay, you know, I'm here, might as well make the most of it. And it is a entered into a whole different type of homogenous environment where um it's an environment very much dominated by Asian Americans and so it was a shift in that I felt more comfortable there than I did say in Texas but I, I quickly found there was a level of that homogeneity and sort of groupthink that I personally didn't like nothing against it by any fault it's a very comfortable lifestyle a very nice place to be and a lot of people find value in being in that environment um it was just something that wasn't for me um and so, for instance, I joined a uh, business fraternity. Um, I majored in business administration, majored in finance. And I joined a business fraternity, and pretty much like 95% of our members throughout the US, they cycled, you know, as people graduated and came back on, were Asian American to some degree. Um, and so you just get this environment where everybody is pursuing Career and academic success. They have certain values. They have certain shared similar traumas as sort of immigrants or first, second generation. Um, and uh, it just, in some ways, creates a virtuous cycle. In other ways, creates a more sort of cynical spiral. Um, so, um, and then that's, yeah, so just kind of that was an exercise of, okay, this is great. This has been a cool experience. But I definitely don't want to stay here for the sort of homogeneity reasons I mentioned, but also just Southern California as a, in general has a certain lifestyle that I don't prefer.
0: What do you mean by that?
2: Um, the inaccessibility to outdoor recreation, the uh, how it's sprawled in sort of perfect... Planned suburbia, a lot of Southern California is, um, a lot of new developments, and glad it's sort of filling the housing needs there, but I think Los Angeles, to me, and that entire Southern California area is one of the epitomes of of our representation of reliance on cars as a mode of transportation, when it would have been a sort of perfect, very perfect study for what a more sort of metropolitan public transport-based you know, a city could have been like with, how many people? we have 8 million people living in that area. And um, uh, just the way that the sort of zoning laws and the way that that entire area, suburban sprawl is structured. Um, I think uh, reliance on cars is just one of the things causing a huge amount of inequity within our society and uh, are sort of a significant barrier to people of color um, that I think given how many people of color are in the LA area um, there could have been a huge shift in. you know there's just there's a whole nother possibility for how that area could have shaped out. Mm.
0: Mm-hmm. At what point did you realize you wanted the outdoors closer by?
2: Yeah it was um, partly through college Um, and I think sort of a culmination of experiences growing up where, um, my dad used to work for Cathay Pacific and living in Texas, um, we spent a lot of time sort of road tripping and traveling out, um, and apologies to anybody listening to this who lives in Texas and is a big Texas fan, Uh, um, it just was a personal preference, so we spent a lot of time traveling, um. And we spent a lot of time going to um, national parks and sort of, you know, your national forests and so on and so forth, because my dad was super cheap. Like, he just, <laughs> he was like, here's the cheapest flight. he You know, we go, and it's, what's the one thing that we can do when we arrive somewhere that's free? It's like, well, you can pay, you know, 70 bucks or however much it is now for an annual national parks pass and just walk around. Um, and... That was essentially it. And so that was kind of the start of it was just, we spent a lot of time in national parks, thankfully, and I'm very grateful for that. Um, at a very sort of relatively superficial level, you, you know, you take going to, for instance, Zion. And it was like, we went to Zion, we drove the sort of, we drove east to west. We stopped at all the viewpoints, but never did any serious hiking or anything like that. But, um, and then in college, um, I just kind of started exploring more as I, I, uh, tried to find something that more fit me beyond sort of just that Southern California environment. And, um, and I think one year I took a trip up to, uh, Banff in the Canadian Rockies. Um, and that was just this insane moment of, you know, obviously a very beautiful environment. Um, just sprawling mountains going for, you know, hundreds of miles and, um, I remember one evening I was just kind of paddling on Lake Louise as the sun was setting. It was just like this realization that like, oh, I want to make being outdoors a core part of, you know, my life and I guess my personality. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, um, that was kind of a big trip for me. And then um, from there, it's just kind of evolved. Uh, You know, a friend took me climbing. Um, to just, a, you know, in one of the touchstone gyms in San Jose. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't know. It sort of really hooked me on it. I think it was, I think growing up, I didn't have a whole lot of sports where I had a sort of natural talent for as a kind of relatively lanky, you know, Asian boy um, who... As uh, I, I was born with, this is a bit of a tangent, but I was born with a heart condition. Um, and so my endurance is, my cardiac endurance has always been kind of relatively limited or takes a significant amount of training to, to improve. Um, and I leave a pretty normal life for the most part. i very healthy, very active, but um, it was just kind of climbing was this one sport where, you know, um, my body type just kind of fit it, um, happened to fit it uh, from a very high level sort of introductory superficial standpoint. Um, and it didn't require a whole lot of cardiac endurance, at least from a bouldering standpoint. <laughs> so, um, it was just kind of a natural fit for me at the start. Um, and then kind of just really fell in love with, um, the sense of adventure around it, especially as you get into like multi-pitch trad and alpine style climbing. Um, and then also the sense of diversity within the climbing and not to stay of like ethnic and cultural diversity but even just like styles of climbing that even within this one community and with this one um quote unquote sport you have different subsets of say bouldering and sport climbing and trad and alpine and you know ice climbing and so on and so forth and then even within those individual subsets there's so many different styles of you know what do you prefer do you like slab do you like overhang are you a highly you know just a very powerful climber are you something that somebody that enjoys something more technical so on and so forth um And then just the sense of community around it, as I'm sure, you know, most climbers are aware. We'll always cite it's just um, it's just a very conducive place to make friends and to form a community around. Mm
0: -hmm. Did you find your previous experiences in Taekwondo helpful when you transitioned to climbing?
2: Um, Not initially, uh, because I'd been under practice for a very long time, Um, but it has actually proved very helpful in that my I'm I'm not typically a flexible person. I've been working on it, but my hips are oddly very flexible. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> uh, perfect for climbing. Yeah, uh, my hips are oddly very flexible, and I can get very aggressive with drop knees. Um, and my toes, my my toe hooks, for whatever reason, are very strong. <sighs> So it's the muscles that I formed as a child doing kicks and stuff like that and, and all that during Taekwondo, I guess, have translated into um, uh, those particular you know channels in that my only real foot beta that I have that's any good is a right toe hook drop knee. And everything else is like I'm pretty crappy at Um yeah so that's the only thing I can do and then whenever I drop the, my wife is just like of, of course you did and when she asked me to sort of beta break a climb she's like can you do so but like not drop you and I'm just like I'm sorry I <laughs> this
0: is how I move I can't
2: <laughs> I can't it's impossible <laughs> so um uh, I would say that's the biggest translation I mm-hmm. think that I've found from climb from Taekwondo that's translated into my climbing mm-hmm. which I didn't really expect but but yeah. there we go
0: yeah I would assume some body awareness, too. Body awareness in space.
2: Yeah, I oh. actually, um, it was very many years between, um, when I had sort of stopped doing Taekwondo. I did Taekwondo for a few years, and then, um, we, when we moved to California, a lot of things happened family-wise, um my sort of, you know, shortly afterwards, the 2008 economic recession hit, I entered into my sort of angsty, you know, teenage, preteen years where I was just, you know, of no help to anybody. Um, My sister went to college and sort of, um, and then, you know, my brother had, his was kind of entering into, my younger brother, who was about six of the time was kind of entering into sort of starting to enter his core developmental sort of early elementary school years and so there were a lot of things that kind of hit the family at once um and a lot of extracurriculars including taekwondo were dropped um Mm -hmm. and so for essentially between 11 years old 10 11 years old to about 18 or 19 years old i did like, zero physical activity. Um, I would hike around occasionally, but, like, maybe nothing more than, like, three miles at best. Um, and so a lot of that body awareness and physicality just, like, fell off a cliff. Uh, and, and so I'm only finding now that this sort of toe hook and hip mobility has somehow magically reemerged. But, um, you know, for a long part of my life, I was not a healthy fit person i was you know skinny and lanky and sort of If you turn me sideways i'd kind of like disappear into just like paper thin um but i you know i wouldn't necessarily call that healthy by any means so
0: interesting um did you ever go climbing outside when you first started or was it mostly in the gym with friends
2: It was, to start with mostly in the gym with friends, I started doing some sort of exploratory excursions out to Joshua Tree when I was, you know, at UCI. Um, And um, so that was really exciting. You know, went a few times, but uh, it wasn't until probably about 2016, 2017. For quite a long period of time that I started really climbing outside seriously. And that was largely because when I graduated college, um that impetus I was talking about of trying to get out of Southern California, I I sort of just picked up and moved to Ireland. Um and then um got a job there in finance, and then that particular job just had me move around a lot. So I lived in Ireland for a while, I lived in Boston, I lived in India, I lived in New York. So it was a lot of moving around where I couldn't really... And during that time, I had sort of sacrificed a lot of my... um, It was great from sort of a life experience standpoint, but it was definitely sort of three or so years, three, four years of sort of sacrificing my hobbies Mm -hmm. um, for that experience, sacrificing my climbing for that life experience. Mm -hmm. Um, So when I came back from that, that's kind of when I really dived into outdoor climbing. So I'd been... climbing, quote-unquote, however you want to state that, for probably five, six years on and off before I really started going outside in any sort of seriousness, just due to, like, life circumstances, so. Mm
0: -hmm. so. What did you learn during that intense kind of few years of working a bunch And what were you doing, too?
2: Yeah, so I, the the impetus was, you know, I had studied abroad when I was in college. I studied abroad in Shanghai, and it was during that time that I was, like, I don't know if you experience periods of, like, just extreme, I don't want to call it, like, hardship necessarily, but just, like, some sorts of, like, pressure or some change or whatever, and you just, like, notice that, like, who you were X period amount, you know, X amount of time, previously is a very different person than who you are now for whatever your growth change whatever that may be i just really wanted to put myself through that again um and so when i moved to ireland it was just kind of blind i didn't have a job i didn't have friends i didn't have networks there i just was like there's a visa i can apply for great let's go um so thankfully got a job with finance with um bank of new york um working in their valuations team so with sort of hardcore finance guy Um, And then uh, I was hoping to stay there for a few years. I was hoping to get sponsored for a longer term visa. My visa was only for one year, Um, but that expired. And then they came and offered me a job in New York. And I said, yeah, for sure. Look, I'm just willing to travel at this point in time. I don't really care. And then they came back to me two weeks later and they said, hey, we have a project that we'd like you to do in Boston and India first before you go to New York. So for about a year, I went between Boston and India, um, Mm -hmm. living between those two. Um, leading this project and then eventually went to uh, New York. So, and I think one thing I learned through that was just, um, I don't know if this sounds kind of cliche, but I think people are very, especially during these times, it's sort of grown more in realization now is people are very quick to judge other lifestyles and other, especially sort of outside around the world, judge other people's thinkings and lifestyles and sort of cultures based on their own understanding uh, of sort of their framework and um, when really it's how people live in these places in say Ireland, Ireland not so much but this India especially is just like a totally different framework of understanding um, that like (laughs) is of course so foreign to us as, as Americans and so when you think about Like, obviously, coming up a lot now is, like, I remember I was climbing at um, that crag in the Uintas, um, Ruth Lake. Yeah, I remember I was climbing climbing at Ruth Lake, and I was climbing up this route, and then all of a sudden, there was these boys off to the side, and I heard them say, like, oh, I don't... Chinese people and Russian people are such sheep. How can they just accept, like, the Communist Party and, like, Putin and stuff like that? Socialism is the same as communism. I don't get it. They're all just such sheep. And, like, I had to stop climbing. Like, I found a no-hands-rest, and I was just like, I have to listen to this entire thing. Um, But that's just kind of an example of, like, there's so much context that we don't understand from other people's lifestyles outside of, you know, the states or outside of quote-unquote, you know, Western-style civilization. We're very quick to judge. But realistically, like, it's safe to assume that every person in India, every person in China, every person in Russia has a relatively equal, you know, brain capacity, processing power, sort of level of intelligence and and consciousness that we do, right? And so, you know, when you take India, just as an example, and there's like one billion-plus people living like that, going about their lives thinking that this is totally fine, this is it's not great, you know, they have their own issues, but but that's just the sort of long winded rant to say that what we find unacceptable based on our framework of understanding is sometimes totally acceptable to another person's framework of understanding. Um and we shouldn't be so quick to sort of judge and write that off as I think we are now for other countries um, and other cultures and other um, yeah, other traditions, so on and so forth.
0: Mm-hmm. Did you have conversations with uh, you know people or acquaintances during that time period that kind of solidified that lesson of maybe taking a step back and not judging immediately and listening?
2: Yeah, so when I lived in Shanghai, I had a local um, Chinese roommate. Um, and, you know, I tried to engage with him as much as I could. And he was very open. He was very honest. Um, his name was Finn. And we would do things together, like I would ask him to help me read Chinese newspapers. Um, and I would ask him about sort of his thoughts on certain things. And it was... Um, uh, um, this is 2013, so what was going on in China at the time? Uh, there was... At that time, one of the biggest things was the issue with sort of... Um, sort of globally, foreign policy-wise, was Syria had just used... I think... Uh, sorry, was it... Yeah, in the Syrian civil war, there had just been the use of sort of chemical weapons that were sort of internationally banned, and then um, there was... All, the UN was trying to go in and sort of... Um, uh, take military action because of that use in Russia on the UN Security Council, vetoed that and then China kind of had, you know, supported Russia in that initiative and I think uh, Xi Jinping had recently come to power in China. Um, and so that's just kind of the context of sort of what was happening foreign policy-wise when I was talking to my friend and I was asking him about these things and he was saying, you know, we don't always agree with what Chinese leadership is doing. Um, but for the most part, we uh, generally still see that, you know, support them quite a bit. Um, in that, you know, he recognized that, and when he was talking about Xi Jinping, he was like, look, we've known, for, people have known for ages, very, very long time, that um, he was going to come to power. And it's just kind of an accepted state of things in China. Um, but sort of the trade off is that, like, Our lives are exponentially better for hundreds of millions, if not a billion Chinese people. Exponentially better than they were 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And that's not something that, you know, people can say in all nations, where if you look at, you know, the states, do we think our lives are exponentially better 10 years ago? And, you know, now than they were 10 years ago, so on and so forth. And then I also had a colleague who uh, was a uh, Russian, and I was talking to her, or if you want to use on Putin, and things like, you know, uh, from your understanding in America, you know, you think somebody like Putin's evil, and that the ruling with a sort of iron fist is, like, is too authoritarian or whatnot, but in Russia's history, when people don't rule with an iron fist, like, Russia as a nation, like, falls into a chaos, and, like, we had, they had a what they call the times of trouble, where like a third of their population died off. And that's sort of a huge trauma for them where when people don't rule with an iron fist, Russia like devolves into that sort of chaos. And so I'm not citing these to say that these people are right or these people, these leaders are justified by any means, but it's just like another perspective that like we don't always fully internalize um, as a relatively young nation with I might get a bit of flack for this, but relatively few sort of in-nation traumas. You know, 9-11, Civil War, Pearl Harbor. But aside from that, you know, we didn't have World War II on our land. We didn't have, mm-hmm. you know, plagues or anything like that. And so we just don't have a lot of sort of trauma-informed decision-making to the scale that other nations do.
0: Mm-hmm. Fascinating. So what brought you to uh, Utah then?
2: Uh, My wife came out here for nursing school. Um, so she came out here ages ago for a concert first, and then she was... Uh, so, and then she kind of fell in love with the area. And so she decided that when she went to nursing school, she'd apply for school out here. Um, and so she did. And then um, my work went remote with COVID. So I'm one of your sort of stereotypical California remote workers now living in Utah <laughs> transplants. Uh, and so uh, I work for a nonprofit, if that makes it any better. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, when
0: did you switch to the nonprofit? <laughs> I still
2: finance adjacent. It's very much finance adjacent. <laughs> um, but I switched to the nonprofit in 2019. Okay. So, end of 2019. So, just before COVID started. Um, so, my work went remote. Um, and uh, so I followed her out here. And then just kind of fell in love with the place and decided to stay.
0: What was it like moving, uh, and you know, trying to make a new home during the pandemic?
2: Yeah, I I had gotten quite used to it. The sort of idea of moving at this point, I was like, okay, cool. You know, there's just I, you know, at that point, I'd moved at least once or twice every year. Of my life. And so I was like, okay, cool. Like, I could pack up in, you know, half a day, throw everything in my truck and be in a new place um, relatively easy. Um, for my wife is a bit more difficult. It was her first time moving out of sort of the greater, you know, California Bay Area. Um, and she did a lot of that sort of initial sort of groundwork to establish a community here for us. Um, so you know, all the sort of typical means of joining Facebook groups, climbing groups. Um, I think she met Leah um, Hernandez on Bumble BFF. So, uh, and then obviously with Leah's involvement in the community, that just kind of opened a whole lot of different doors for us to get involved. And so um, by the time I came, Trin had already been living in Salt Lake City for about like eight months by the time I arrived. Uh, and so she'd already done a lot of that groundwork to sort of create at least some form of an initial community. So it wasn't too bad. Um, with COVID, obviously, it was uh, quiet for a while, um, but I don't think that would have, you know... Um, it, it, you know, it was just a question of, like, where were we isolated? Were we isolated in California? Were we isolated in Utah? So in the end, it didn't really matter to me a whole lot. Um, so thankfully, not too difficult, because I was used to the move before, and second, because of my wife's efforts beforehand.
0: Mm. Oh, that's so nice.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it definitely makes it easier. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I'm grateful that I didn't have to do all that hard.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So when did you get involved with, um, I guess, Color of the Wasatch?
2: Yeah. um, It was... Priam Patel was one of the founders of Color of the Wasatch, and so went out to their first meetup and that was really sort of a sticking point for me um, was since then just developed sort of a core group of friends around Color the Wasatch and then was just always there to like you know I wasn't a leader in an in, in official capacity to start with but it was just like hey I'm here just happy to be a consistent member of the community um, and then it was about a year ago that I started joining on an official leadership role um, it was just kind of a natural, like, look, you're here all the time anyways. You, know, you are always helping out. Like, why not just jump on? Um, and so, yeah, that was just kind of a natural evolution. And it's been great since then. Um, mostly just trying to help us figure out what is our role within the greater community, climate community, and how do we grow and continue to sort of scale as um, more and more interests comes our way,
0: mm-hmm. what's uh, something? Or, or what, I guess what's the goal of this? The color of the wasatch.
2: Yeah, um, I think each leader will have different statements yeah. on what the goal is, and you know we have sort of a combined statement that in around our mission, vision, and values. But I, when I think about it from just a personal sort of motivation standpoint, I think the goal for me is to have people of color as embedded within the climbing community as sort of your typical heteronormative white folks. Um, You know, there's that... There's a stupid... I always think about it. There's this really ridiculous, kind of wholesome commercial from uh, John Cena. I don't know if you know this, but he was just in walking. He was like, when you think about your typical American, like, what do you imagine? And then he was like, well, stop there, actually. More than half of the Americans are female. And blah, 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 anyway, oh, Chinese and Indian and Hispanic and blah, blah, blah. And so it was just this thing that he was... This, and then I, for some reason that just kind of always sits in my mind as like a metaphor. But just like one day I would like for when you think of what does your typical climber look like? When somebody embodies what does a person embedded within the climbing community look like? That people of color are as deeply embedded into that image um As say white folks
0: mm-hmm. what was it like coming to from California where there's definitely more diversity? Yeah, than uh, Salt Lake, or at least the perception that Salt Lake gets.
2: Yeah, um it was it's a learning experience for sure, and growing up in Texas, it was you know, I'm not unfortunately not new to uncomfortable scenarios is like to put it in the friendliest manner um and so you know there are certain affinity group initiatives out in california and this isn't to discount or credit their work it's very important i just don't think i'm the right person to do that work because when you look at sort of the climbing community in california in a lot of places especially gym climbing is predominantly asian americans and so in california asian americans hold sort of that position of sort of have a different place in the power dynamic and so that's one reason i mean i didn't necessarily find a home in california that i wanted to really invest in at that point in time but um that's another reason why you know why do i feel so much more passionate about the work here versus in california is just that like i don't think i'm the right person to do it um and then so coming here you know you see things that especially during covid was interesting um you know i in the spectrum of that sort of things ranges from like is this a microaggression that like i'm searching too hard for to like to like wow that was kind of blatantly racist like things like you know i went shopping at what's that grocery store on state street um uh like you get off winco winco yeah i've stopped going to winco because i've gotten racist remarks there twice um and i'm just like i'm done i'm just not gonna go here anymore um so uh which is a shame because they have cheap groceries but i just like have no desire to shop at winco anymore Hmm. Um, to other things like when I was, you know, especially during the core of COVID as I was still sort of trying to transition from California to to Salt Lake City. I was driving and, um, you know, before I, you know, let's say California had a mask mandate and I had internalized wearing masks versus let's say Central Nevada didn't. And like you could, I could palpably like feel like the tension walking into a gas station in like Central Nevada, um, or in any sort of places outside of Salt Lake City, so Utah. And it was just like, I could see people, I could feel people looking at me. Um, so it was just like not fun things to do. And then, um, on the other side where it's like, it's not malicious by any means, but like, I remember I was climbing at, um, Joe's one day or Mo's. I, I was climbing, uh, I, it was Mo's. I was climbing at Mo's one day and I kind of showed up by myself and I showed up at this boulder where, um, there were six other guys there. I was the only person of color. And they weren't, you know, a pre-made social group. I think they were, like, pairs of two or whatever. And we all just happened to show up at the same boulder. And they all started engaging with each other. And when I tried to engage, there was just, like, sort of a non-committal sort of... Just like, oh, hey, dude. Um, they just didn't really engage with me much. Uh, but they engaged with themselves quite a bit. Um... And they didn't really engage with me until, like, I climbed harder than them. And it was just like, oh, cool, great. Like, now that I've proved my competency, you want to talk to me. Um, And so i it wasn't malicious by any means I don't necessarily, like, I don't, I don't fully hold it against them but it's just something that's like again same thing where it's like when you think about people climbing outside you don't like default to you know Chinese Americans or, or any any so by any means or um, so there's been some adjustments uh, but you know that's why i sort of I'm so passionate about the work of Color of the Wasatch and, mm-hmm. and, and and whatnot and um. Still very much happy to be here.
0: Mm-hmm. For color of the Wasatch, um, what does your role now as a leader look like, and what are some things that you're really proud of that the groups accomplished?
2: Yeah, so I think you know we don't have very set roles among the leadership team, we're all just still trying to figure out, you know, it's kind of an all-hands-on-deck as we begin and kind of figure out who we are and what we're doing, and um, we're all just very eager to help out, and sort of there's an open communication of, like, oh, we have an event, but I'm pretty packed, I'm out of town, do you mind taking the over, you know, uh, you know, managing social media, so on and so forth, and just kind of a easy, very easy communication flow and handoff off there. Um, but largely what I do is, you know, try to uh, organize our events um, and Uh, some of our marketing aspects of it, as well as, um, you know, uh, just trying to figure out, thinking about what are our sort of big next steps as an organization, you know, Um, do we have capacity to do so um, as sort of a nonprofit and realistically a volunteer role for sort of a leadership group for people who have, you know, busy schedules even aside from Pellet and Wasatch. But, you know, I think two of the things that I'm, most proud of that we've accomplished so far is one you know the community has gotten to a point where they're self-organizing and I feel pretty confident that you know of course there's still more room to grow but if you were to take Color the Wasatch as sort of an entity if that were to disappear the community wouldn't Mm. and I think that's very key is ultimately like, like, like I just want people to have this space and whether whatever label that space falls under how it's you know or how it manifests itself it doesn't really matter to me whether it's called the wild stars or just people hanging out or just you know whatever that may be and so that's something that i'm really happy about is that because uh, ultimately i think especially when it comes to nonprofit initiatives um for that it, there's it's unsustainable for them to rely on a small handful of individuals um and so being knowing that like I don't plan to step back anytime soon but if I did step back or if any one of our my sort of the other leadership team did step back that that community would disappear and the second thing is just having people come up and just saying you know thank you for making this space um, and just you know doing this work because um, uh, you know, I've been in the climbing community for a long time now and I still feel you know I there's moments as I mentioned that I still feel uncomfortable but for the most part I feel relatively familiar with the community it's easy enough for me to be integrated in so when you do that you kind of lose sight of what are some of the initial challenges and you kind of I guess you know sandbag you may sandbag other people inadvertently um, in terms of you know may not realize like oh these are some of the challenges people have trying to enter into a community um, and it's just nice to know that even as we kind of Rely on what are our old experiences when we started climbing. We're still doing sort of the you know correct work.
0: What do the events and kind of the
2: look like? Yeah, so for Describe most those. of them right now are climbing meetups. So it's just you know at the Salt Lake Bouldering Project as well as the Front um, biweekly, um, and trying to remove those barriers to. To to climbing. So, one of the most obvious ones are sort of financial barriers. So, um, we source, you know, day passes from community and donations and stuff like that. And we have a few, we have stipends from the gyms, so on and so forth, that um, we can utilize for people's day passes when they come to visit. Um, And then the sort of other not so obvious barriers of like knowledge and, you know, being comfortable in that environment. And um, so, just trying to remove those as much as possible. So, We'll also do a few clinics at the gyms here and there. So um, at Salt Lake Bouldering Project, we had a clinic, I think, two months ago with uh, Kaleb Robinson, um, who, who sort of helps people understand how to sort of project a route and what are some techniques there, so on and so forth. So some of those sort of knowledge barriers. Um, and then our next meetup is at the front South Main with some of their route setters. Um Alvin and Mert, um, doing a route setting clinic for us, which I think is really exciting because when you think about some of the more sort of uh, exclusive quote unquote, you know, parts of climbing route setting is definitely up there. Um, and so I'm really excited for that to give our community the opportunity to see how our routes set. Um, and they're very often set for, you know, very particular, Types of climbers and body types and stuff like that. Um, And so just having a view into that and then giving, and then there'll be a session where people can play around, group together, and set routes themselves and try to understand what is this grade. We set this route, I think it's a three, oh, that's, you know, so on and so forth. Um, So really excited for that. And then, you know, my personal goal, one of my biggest goals with this is to try to get to a point where we have people of color doing really cool things outdoors um and that's because you know it's it's largely my, my motivation i just enjoy doing cool things outdoors you know one of my big things like alpine style trips and stuff like that and there's a balance there between you know trying to figure out how do we provide the information and the you know and not force anybody into it and then also a second type of acceptance, uh, sort of a balance with like, you know, you don't have to do hard stuff. You don't have to do extreme stuff to be a part of the climbing community. And so trying to find that balance of like making it available and trying to turn those barriers, but not pressuring people to say, hey, like I want you to come with me to Lone Peak, <laughs> you know? And, you know, do multi-pitch trad stuff um, in a relatively, you know, remote Alpine-esque environment. Uh, And if people are like, look, I just want to climb 5'8 sport for the rest of my life. That's totally cool. Totally cool. Um, And so making sure there's a spectrum of possibilities there.
0: How do you go about finding uh, partners as, like, you're a leader of this group and people might approach you since you do have outdoor experience and kind of like balancing like are you approaching me because I'm like a leader of this group or are you approaching me because you want to be friends and have build this partnership? <laughs> Does
2: yeah. Does that make sense? Is that are you asking from like a climbing partnership? Like who yeah, like climbing, climbing partner climbing. or like more so like partnership for like colour of the Uh
0: climbing partners. Climbing yeah.
2: partner, okay. Um it's a balance for sure. Yeah. It's hard. Um definitely trying to balance my own personal initiatives and and sort of the initiatives of Color the the Wasatch. Um, as much as I would like to say there is overlap, there is overlap for sure, but at a certain point they do divulge. Um, and I think when I look at this past season and this past year overall, it's been a lot of giving of myself. I haven't accomplished my climbing goals for this season. Um, and when I look at it, I think a large part of that is because i spent so much time investing in the community. And not to say that I'm sort mm-hmm. of angry about it by any means. It's it's something that I think anybody who does this type kind of work has to come to acceptance to. Mm-hmm. Um, that you only have so much capacity. Um, and some of it has gone to my work. Some of it has gone to, you know, some of my climbing goals. Some of it has gone to, you know, work with Colorado Wasatch and SLCA and so on and so forth. And... <sighs> I'm at this point in my life where, and I'm at this point of acceptance where when people come to me and ask to climb, um, no matter who they are, so long as I can make, if time for it and we can reasonably feasibly plan it, I'm very happy to climb whatever um, if it's a learning experience for them. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't mind going on a, uh, you know, relatively introductory trad route. Um, if it means that, hey, this is my first time going on trad, I don't have a whole lot of people to teach me. Actually, I have nobody else to teach me. Do you mind teaching me one day? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they don't even have to come to me. I make it readily available to a lot of people. I just say, hey, look, if you ever want to learn trad one day, if you ever want to, you know, if that's something that you want to explore, feel free to reach out. Um, and I know I'm pretty busy. You might have to kind of poke me. But um, ultimately, I'll always be very happy to do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's just kind of at a point in my life where i'm at right now where you know things have gone really well for me um life-wise um got married during covid um has gone well throughout covid was able to come out here and move to utah um buy a house all these things where i am just in a position where i have i feel like i have more than i deserve and i am happy to give um and that might change, you know, in, you know, next season. That might change next year where I feel like for my own well-being, I need to focus on my own personal goals. Um, and kind of not to say completely step away, but shift that balance slightly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for now, you know, I don't really have any issues in finding climate partners whenever I want to pursue something for my own personal sort of endeavors. I, you know, have a host of friends through Color the Walsh and sort of other community portions here where I can reach out and just say, hey, you want to get on this? line today or whatever tomorrow or sometime this week blah 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 um, and at the same time there's you know no shortage of people who are newer to climbing who want to learn um and mostly you know just happy to sort of pass it on and and um get outside in any sort of capacity
0: mm-hmm. yeah giving back and being a mentor yeah yeah well, that's great um can you talk a little bit about your role with salt lake climbers alliance
2: yeah So I am the treasurer for the Salt Lake Climbers Alliance, um, since April, 2022, I've also been involved as a member of the Jedi committee for the Salt Lake Climbers Alliance, Um, since I think like November-ish, 2020, or I can't remember when the Jedi committee was formed, but very early on in that, in that process, I've been a member of the Jedi committee. (laughs) So I've been involved since then, um, And so, with the Jedi Committee, all of that work has been, of course, thinking about, you know, how does the SLCA, the Salt Lake Climbers Alliance, which I'll probably refer to going forward as SLCA, um, tackle issues of, sort of, equality and DEI initiatives. Um, And then as Treasurer, um, just sort of, um, as I was looking to give back and invest in the community, it was kind of just a natural evolution for me of um, my work in finance, and um, I think as a nonprofit, especially for SLCA, the goal isn't by any means to make money, but I think there's a very quiet sort of background diligence around financial management that empowers a lot of the work that the SLCA wants to do. Um, And so that's kind of how I view my role with the SLCA is there's a lot of other people, uh, like Julia, like Jess, who do a great job of being you know, sort of, uh, I don't want to call them the faces of SLCA, um, who do a very good job of engaging with the community and leading the sort of advocacy and stewardship work that the SLCA does. Um, and in that sort of realm, that's not for me. Um, it's just not my expertise. It's not my strong suit, but if I can sort of clear the table and make sure that, you know, they have the financial resources to do so, um, then, uh, then that just that they have less to worry about and they can focus on what their value add is, without having to stress about money. That's kind of how I view my role.
0: Mm-hmm. How about for the uh, Jedi committee? Yeah,
2: That's been
0: something that um, you feel like you've been able to contribute uniquely to some of their accomplishments.
2: Yeah, I think you know it's especially with this sort of DEI work. I think a large part of it is trying to receive as many perspectives as possible. Um, And so I think one of my core value adds there is really just another perspective. Um, um, And trying to help the organization figure out how do we tackle this, which has been still a question mark. Um, But, you know, I think through the Jedi Committee, there's a significant amount of overlap between the Jedi Committee. Actually, I say significant. I think pretty much everybody in the jedi committee is involved through other affinity groups in some shape or form um so like half the jedi committee uh is you know our leaders for salt lake area Queer climbers the other half are leaders of color of the wasatch and so it's you know that work isn't done in isolation by any means and i think they, they very much have stemmed off each other as we try to figure out what is the SLCA's role but also sort of where do we fit into this community at large and so mm-hmm. I think that's been a byproduct of the Jedi Committee of of um, you know how do we shape this overall environment within and outside of SLCA
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, and so there's been some more tangible efforts but it's been slow work um for sort of differing organizational challenges um, but it's you know we have a, we're trying to tackle it with our strategic planning now um, and the board's trying to figure out you know what are the next steps for the jedi committee how does this evolve um, because in full disclosure i think the the view for the jedi committee for a lot of people on the committee is very different from where the jedi committee is today and so there needs to be some we're trying to figure out what's what's the step forward what's the evolution here
0: from uh your perspective where do you see room for growth for these uh communities
2: yeah so when i think about you know the most i can do here is i i in full disclosure like i don't have a wealth of experience in DEI work myself aside from, you know, Colorado Wasatch and Jedi committee and SLCA, um, you know, versus somebody like uh, Leah, who studied this work and has been involved in this work for years and years and years. Um, and so I often try to draw parallels where appropriate. And so right now, my work is, my professional work is revolved around sustainable finance. So how do investors incorporate sustainability measures into their investment-making decision and decisions um, and how do companies integrate in sustainability considerations into their processes and risk management and whatnot and so on and so forth. And so when I draw parallels from that, when I look at where have sustainability initiatives been successful within companies and investors, I think they're most successful when sustainability sort of Subject matter experts are embedded within different functions, uh, rather than a separate, dedicated individual sustainability team. Because mm-hmm. most often than not, that team is under resourced and ends up kind of just being um, tokenized. Um, and so that's kind of drawing a parallel here and bring this back to SLCA is where I think there's evolution is the SLCA can decide you know is this the appropriate work. For SLCA to take on, or do we say we are going to refer to the expertise of the affinity groups that have propagated and really developed throughout the community? Or do we restructure the Jedi Committee so that it isn't is no longer an individual separate committee, but that the people who make up the Jedi Committee are DEI experts or DEI sort of owners nested within different functions. So you have somebody, say, on the policy committee who's dedicated DI work. You have somebody on the anchor maintenance crew who's dedicated DI work. Um, Somebody on, say, the board, so on and so forth. And then these people together then form the the JEDI committee. Um, So that's kind of how I view it moving forward to really, one, identify the scope and to really um, the most productive evolution of this work. So you know, I'm there's discussions, evolving discussions on it now still, and I'm not married to any particular approach, and still very much open to sort of what other people think, and because I know that feedback, I like that um, that view on evolution is very much informed by corporate America, which is like not always appropriate. <laughs> uh, um, so um, that's kind of my initial thinking, but uh, we'll see how that evolves and plays out as we as the sort of board continues to discuss and figure that out.
0: Nice. Well, that's neat. Um, so you've been here in Salt Lake for what three years?
2: Approaching three years. Approaching now, three know.
0: years. What? Um, what have you noticed in terms of like the um, climbing outside? You mentioned going down to Mo's. Yeah. And other areas and Lone Peak. Yeah. Um, what are some of those experiences um, that you've been able to? Appreciate or kind of um, have had an impact like kind of outside of, you know, all of the advocacy work that you've been doing?
2: Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I think for a lot of people who have come to Salt Lake City and decide to stay here, it's just like the astounding access to such a wide diversity of quality outdoor activities. You know, whatever that is, you know, skiing, of course, is a big one. But, you know... Um, and with climbing, it's you have really a prime alpine environment in Lone Peak, you know, which is the drive is negligible when you compare it to the to the approach, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, which is getting much better with the Jacob's ladder work, which is really exciting. Um, but uh, and then you have things like Little Cottonwood, where you have the full spectrum of. You know a single pitch strad to you know multi-pitch adventures that you can go on to you know and then all of a sudden you shift you know you go from little cottonwood to big cottonwood and all of a sudden the climbing style changes entirely and then you go to maple canyon or um you know american fork and so on and so forth and and it's just so easy to find something to do that isn't just like i guess it's climbing you know like it's rock so but it's actually really high quality stuff that if you picked it up and moved it somewhere else like people would travel across the world to get to these places um and i think that's something that i'm always kind of floored by was just you know um i can go to little cottonwood on any afternoon and do a really high quality climb um whether it's Boulder. The bouldering is a bit uh, greasy, <laughs> but still, I guess that just makes it more challenging. Uh,
0: depends on the temperatures. Depends on the
2: temperatures, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> depends on the temperatures. Um, you know, and then at the same time, you know, I can take a weekend off, say, in, in, in the shoulder season, and I can go down to Moe's, or I can, if I don't want to climb on that particular day, I can go, uh, you know, I'm an avid backpacker as well, and I can just go and just do a beautiful slot canyon hike. You know, and just get lost in towering, you know, red sounds, sandstone cliffs, and that's something that, like, like when I was in California, which has a lot of benefits. The food is definitely a bigger benefit, but like, you know, it's like, okay, cool. Well, what are my climbing options for a day? Is I can go to the gym on any single day, of course, but outdoor climbing, like Castle Rock which is a crag up in the Santa Cruz mountains. And it's like a 45 minute drive if at best, you know, with no traffic. And so it's like you go any day after work, but it's just, it's a huge pain in the butt. Um, and if you want to go climb for a weekend, it's like, well, okay, there's Yosemite and that's a commitment to get to. And it's very nice. I remember one of my first realizations was I was at the base of a Um, a climb with my wife and we just weren't feeling it and I remember if I was doing this in Yosemite I'd be like well we drove four hours to get here like you know maybe might have taken a day off or whatever Well, so I'm going to do this climb but here I am at the base and I'm like I'm not really like I'm feeling kind of lazy let's just go home and get food and it just wasn't a big deal and I was like that's really cool like I can just come back here tomorrow because you know I, I live 15 minutes away And I think that was a big moment for me of just like, this is really cool. And every single time I come back down from Little Cottonwood and you're driving along that, um, I don't what's the road called, the, um... Like Was- at Wasatch Boulevard. Wasatch Boulevard, yeah. And you kind of get that, that road is kind of elevated over the community. And you kind of, I, I don't know, I just really always really enjoy that drive coming back out of Little Cottonwood. I don't know, whatever that sort of endorphins or whatever are flowing in <laughs> uh, after a climb. <laughs> and it's just uh, usually the sun setting or it's like dusk or whatever. And it's just, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that's always a very impactful experience for me. That's
0: great. Are do you Have you had any. Mentors or people who have had an influence in terms of either your your climbing or kind of the climbing work that you've done, kind of with these community organizations.
2: Yeah, um, I off the top of my head, I'll cite you know Leah and Maddie, two of the leaders of Salt Lake area queer climbers. Um, Leah for her sort of expertise and sort of constant. Bubbliness and optimism around the DEI work, even though it can be very emotionally exhausting. Um, And then, Maddie, for just what a powerhouse he is in terms of creating a a space and creating initiatives for his community. Um, Slack was originally, Salt Lake Area Queer Climbers, uh, which I'll refer to as Slack, was originally founded, um, was inspired by Color the Wasatch. But through their efforts, they're sort of very much ahead of us now in terms of the level of organization and the level of structure that they've been able and consistency they've been able to provide to their members. And it's just something that, you know, I look at and I'm just like, how do you find time to balance your own stuff and, you know, your own initiatives and your own goals and still have the emotional energy and capacity to do all this work for Slack and to give so much of yourself, Um. Which I find astounding, and I'm trying to figure that out. And we very much just piggyback off their work a lot. I mean, if you check our Instagram posts for our meetups, it's pretty much I've just copied <laughs> what Slack says for their meetups, and I'm like, I just change a few words.
0: Uh, <laughs> Don't reinvent the wheel. <laughs> yeah. So,
2: and they're very gracious about it. They're not like you guys need to go do your own thing, like figure your own stuff out. They're very, they're very gracious about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then aside from that, you know, on a sort of higher level, is just like you know, you have your typical sort of famous climber sort of um, mentors uh, from a pretty stereotypical sort of Asian American perspective. People like, you know, Shima and, and, and Jimmy um, just seeing other, uh, you know, as, as cliche as it is, like the representation matters. Um, and just knowing that, you know, because in full reality, like climbing is not a generally accepted part of Asian-American culture. Uh, it's not something that's actively encouraged in our culture. And just knowing that there's somebody who sort of saw all that and decided to succeed in climbing despite... Um, I don't want to necessarily despite. I don't, I don't want to say they're negative. It's just not, It's you know, in lieu of those obstacles... Um, that are I imagine obviously don't know a whole lot about their personal lives but you know you can kind of imagine you know, uh, when you look at other when I look at other Asian Americans Asian Americans I can imagine sort of the societal family pressures that they face and um, it's just nice to know that there's something reassuring knowing that people have overcome that and to achieve the same level that they have not to say that I will ever achieve at the same level they they perform at um, but it's just, it's just a small factor to creating that framework um, of understanding that like, I can be a part of this community as well.
0: Mm-hmm. That's great. Um, so, you've, you've kind of touched on it a little bit, but how are you attempting <laughs> to balance kind of your work and all of this um, personal life and then kind of the emotional labor <laughs> of Color of the Wasatch and the uh, Solar Climber Alliance work as well.
2: Yeah, uh, realistically, not a great job. Yeah. Of it, um, I need to figure something. I need to. I need to. Maybe with the season coming to a close, I'll sort of retune. Um, but I, um, I kind of have a manic personality to continue sort of growth. And, uh, and so maybe that just kind of comes to a point where I'm like, wow, I'm taking up too much. Um, and I'm trying to be very cognizant of where I am sort of overloaded. Um, and I don't know. I honestly, I don't think I'm doing a great job. Like in folded, like I, I kind of snapped at my wife yesterday cause she wanted to go for a run at like 9 PM. And I was like, I don't really want to. Like, I snapped for the stupidest reason. It was like, let's. I just like, let's just go. Let's go for a run and leave the side door unlocked. just like, oh no, I want to lock it and bring the key. In. And I was like, why? We're only gone for thirty minutes, and I don't know. It's just like, I think I was at a point of like mental capacity. Just like was, like it was gone. Um, so, um, I need to figure that out. Mm-hmm. in Full disclosure. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's some practices I can change personally of just fixing my sleep schedule. You know, um, setting maybe certain boundaries of work, uh, work's changed quite drastically. Um, I am looking for new work. And I've actually gotten a verbal offer, so hopefully by the time this comes... I don't think any of my <laughs> colleagues would stumble upon this, but if they do, hopefully timing of this is such that I, with the verbal offer that I have so far, I will have switched jobs anyhow. Um, so... Um, there's some shifts in place Mm -hmm. and I think a lot of it also has to do with the season where I feel very manic about not having accomplished enough of my personal goals during the season. Mm -hmm. Um, and a part of me is trying to come to terms with it, especially as I get older where like I'm not, like I'm not old, I'm 29 years old, but I think there comes a certain point where it's like, okay, progression for me and climbing, regardless of what my other sort of capacities and, and sort of involvements are, is no longer climbing harder or maximizing grades. There, ne- I need to rethink what my understanding of progression is at a certain point, you know, because I, I think there's going to reach a point where I don't know where it is. I don't know when it is. I don't know if it's now, or I don't know if it's five years from now or 10 years from now or whatever time it may be, but there's definitely going to be a point where I'm going to crest or peak in terms of my maximum grade capability. And I'm trying to be graceful in terms of whenever that time is, you just don't know, right? I'm just trying to be graceful of this is quote unquote the best I will ever perform, and I'm just trying to be graceful about that. Mm. Um. So, but I have, you know, um, I am about to accomplish one big goal. as I'm going to Nepal um, on Saturday for three weeks, uh, which I'm really excited for, and this has been sort of on my dock it for a very long time um so maybe i will feel much better about all these personal goals afterwards um but who knows i don't know it's not climbing um it's it's so maybe i'll come back and i'll feel weak but i i'm very grateful for this trip Mm -hmm. uh and i'm very excited um so i think but it also contributes to my feeling of the season kind of tightening where i'm september has been a mad rush as i prep for this trip and haven't climbed as much and then i'm gone for three weeks And then I get back, and then it's pretty much November. (laughs) And then season's over, and I'm like, okay, cool. There there goes the personal goals. Um, So that's a long ramble to essentially... I'm not doing a great job of managing.
0: (laughs) Hopefully the Nepal (laughs) trip will be a nicer reset.
2: Yeah, hopefully, fingers crossed. Yeah,
0: I think it will be optimistic for
2: you. (laughs) Hopefully. I'm very optimistic as well.
0: (laughs) What's the biggest challenge you see facing the climbing community, and that can be here locally or just um, big picture?
2: Yeah, I think... (sighs) You know i think it's sort of threefold is one the environmental challenges that we face and i think all these are going to be pretty cliche answers um, um but the environmental challenges we face globally very particularly in the american west and then very particularly with salt lake and the sort of the drying up nature of our lake um and sort of the reduced snowfall and so on and so forth and you know um and the second is, as we've been discussing, sort of integration of sort of underrepresented communities within you know the climbing sphere, um, and how do we do that in a way that respects? I don't want to say everybody, but respects a healthy array of perspectives, um, and that you know there are people who have very malicious opinions and thoughts that I'm like, okay, I don't think that deserves any respect, but it is a rapidly changing world and community and environment. And I can understand that the change can cause a bit of confusion, trepidation with the status quo. Um, And so people who are more aggressive about some of this DEI work might say, you know, screw the status quo. It's just, you know, let's push for our space. But, you know, my personal preference, my personal opinion, or, you know, I'm not saying I'm right or wrong. I think it takes all types is that I think there's a more, there's a, um, sort of a reasoned approach um, to, or, uh, to to this work where um, you work with the status quo to slowly evolve, to, to eventually evolve it. But anyways, yeah, so basically I think trying to figure out, you know, how does that integration work is of course a big question for these underprivileged communities and the climbing community at large. And then I think a big one that... I think nobody knows how to deal with properly. I haven't seen I've seen very few instances of this being done well is recognition of indigenous lands um, and I'm not saying this is like a, on a high horse by any means like I found this solution I, I do not I have no idea what to do honestly like within climbing and without climbing um, but it's something that you know will it sort of just fade away hopefully not I don't know. I, you know, it's something that, you know, we do land acknowledgements and stuff like that, but, like, what is within any person's capacity to, within anybody, typical, even a, in an affinity group, like, call it the Wasatch or Slack, like, what is within our capacity? Even SLCA, what is within our capacity to, to tackle these these issues? And it's like, well, one, do we know any Indigenous folks to engage with to even start asking these questions? And two, if we did like, what could we reasonably do? Like, how do you, like go back how do you how do you apologize how do you i don't know how do you create concessions around this Who knows? so that's just Mm -hmm. the next one that uh, i think are the biggest challenges and it might just go unanswered unfortunately for a very long time Mm -hmm. um but we'll see
0: Hmm. yeah uh what impact do you hope to have on the climbing community
2: um I think the biggest thing for me is just contributing to uh, sort of a f- shared framework of understanding. And I know that's kind of a vague term, but I just want to think about, like, in this way from, say, uh, for uh, white folks when, you know, getting to the point where you people, you know, it's just more attuned to seeing people of color outside or under underrepresented communities outside in these environments. And then more so from you know, people of color standpoint, growing up, you know, if I went to my parents and I think this is, this will be very similar for a lot of people of color. If I went to my parents and I said, I want to do outdoor recreation, whatever that is, climbing, skiing, blah, blah, blah. They would just look at me and be like, what do you mean outdoor recreation? Like you want to go walk in the park? Like you want to walk outside? Like you want to go have a picnic? Like, what do you mean? You know, and they just, i look at them and be like, I honestly don't know. I just, like, go outside and I don't know what you can do. Um And I think that's the case for a lot of people of color where it's like, I just didn't know you could climb. I didn't know you could ski. I didn't know you could, you know, I don't, and even if I did know, like, how do you even start to begin doing that? Like, this is going to be really, maybe this is a really crappy parallel, but I found, I came across this, like, really obscure posting on reddit where these people are is this like professional sheep imitating really really ridiculous but essentially somewhere in scotland or wales or somewhere people will dress up like sheep and all hang out in a pen and have a competition to see who is the most sheep like and when you think about that from like your perspective you just look at it and you're like that's kind of ridiculous like how does one even who even thought of this how does one even start to get involved what are you know what do you like do people make this stuff at home is there like a cheap store where people buy imitation gear what are the you know what are the cultural norms in this community what is judged way what is judged as successful how do you be the most sheepish <laughs> per se and so these are all questions that like you translate them to climbing and these are the questions that people who aren't familiar with this environment have Um, and so it's not just financial barriers but it's just even like a framework of acknowledgement of like like until two seconds ago like you might not have known that like the sheep competition existed Uh, same thing until, until a certain point in time a lot of people of color didn't know that climbing was a thing in the form that it is you know and then knowing that um Oh, who can I turn to to try to get into this community? What are the norms? What are the language? You know, what are the terminologies? What is judged as successful? What are proper practices, um, LNT practices, and such, and so on and so forth? And so that's really what I hope to contribute most to the climbing community is that just being a small piece of this framework that when in the future, when a person of color says, I, one, they are aware of climbing and really just outdoor recreation as a, as a possibility for them, and two, that they have the resources necessary in some form or at least sort of a trail to follow to reach, you know, a perceived end goal through that, whether it's, you know, financial resources for our community or just so many small things of seeing themselves as a sort of Hispanic American a a black American an Asian American whoever that may be in this community um, being able to imagine themselves there um, as well as figuring out how to slowly piece together where to pull together the knowledge to be able to do these things Um, and hopefully that's kind of just the the greatest impact that I can have
0: Mm -hmm. Is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you'd like to share?
2: Um no, not off the top of my head. I know I've kind of rambled a lot here. Um, uh, but yeah, um, if people are listening to this and want to come check out Color of the Wasatch, Salt Lake Climbers Alliance, I think, is more well known uh, <laughs> within the climbing area. And that's easy enough to find on the SLCA website and then Instagram. But um, for Color of the Wasatch and the Salt Lake Area Queer Climbers, we're both on Instagram uh, as at color of the wasash and at salt lake area queer climbers and those are our primary means of engaging with the community so if you're listening to this and want to get involved that's how you do it uh but i think that's that's my plug <laughs> <They're done.
0: laughs> awesome well thank you so much for coming up
2: here yeah of course have to do it
1: thanks for listening we hope you enjoyed this episode Please keep in mind that the views and opinions expressed in this interview are solely those of the oral history participants and do not reflect any views, opinions, or official policy at the University of Utah or the J. Willard Marriott Library. For more information about this podcast, check out the ascentarchive.lib.utah.edu. That's A-S-C-E-N-T-A-R-C-H-I-V-E dot L-I-B dot the Ascent Archive podcast team includes librarians Tally Kasucci and myself, Rachel Whitman. Special thanks to Leah Donaldson for graphic and website design, Brian Elias Hull for music, and thanks to the University of Utah Special Collections and the American West Center. And lastly, the rock climbing community for participating in these interviews and listening.